Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Reimagining business possibility with lounge underwear and Afrocentrics, powered by Shopify. When we switched to Shopify, our sales tripled overnight. Having Shopify at your fingertips, it just allows us to kind of jump in. Start selling today with Shopify to join the commerce platform powering thousands of businesses across the UK. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.co.uk slash green. Go to shopify.co.uk slash green to start selling online today. When Australians vote no, they are voting to maintain equality in our country. They are voting no to the continued aggressiveness of leftist ideology that has slowly eroded our wonderful shared Australian values and culture. And I I am privileged to be in a position where I hope to be able to rebuild our nation, to feel proud of who we are as Australians again, so that our children can stand proud to call themselves Australian. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Jacinta Nampiumpa-Price. Jacinta, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been itching to speak to you for a long time about so many things, but of course today I think we have to talk about the big thing which is the voice to parliament referendum that is taking place in Australia and which voting will t- take place on the 14th of October. So it's coming up very soon. For non-Australian listen- listeners who might not know, you are, you sit in the Australian Senate. You are the senator for the Northern Territory. You're also the shadow minister for Indigenous Affairs. And you are one of the leading voices, if not the leading voice, I would say, over the past few weeks in in saying no to the voice to Parliament. And this is a voice that would allow Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people to make representations to government. So there's a lot for us to unpick and talk about, but I just want to ask a, a practical question to begin with. What exactly are Australians being asked to vote about on the 14th of October? What is the question? What is the voice that they're being asked to say yes or no to? Well, I think, Brendan, that's half the problem with this proposal is that we're being asked to make an amendment to our constitution. And the question um, is based around recognition of Indigenous Australians. uh, And they're suggesting it is through a body which will be known as the voice. Now, uh, the voice uh, will be determined after the referendum of what it looks like, uh, who will participate in it, what it will um, do, what its functions are, and this will be left to the parliament to determine. So we're, we're being asked to um, sign a blank cheque uh, as a country. And that to me is um, a very dangerous proposition. There is no other um, concept like this around the world where a nation has gone ahead and changed their constitution um, to 
to provide uh, an amendment that allows for an unknown entity to exist uh, in it. And apart from that, uh, it is specific to people of Aboriginal heritage. So everybody else is sort of excluded uh, from, from what this concept is. So a lot of red flags for me uh, as someone who has an Aboriginal mother and a white Australian father. So um, the way the Yes campaign is presenting the voice to Parliament, so the Yes lobby, we'll get into the Yes lobby soon, I hope. I want to ask you some questions about that. Um, But they do seem to be made up of, you know, the celebrity set, the political establishment in the old sense, a lot of the liberal, small L liberal media um, are backing uh, the the voice and, and want people to say yes to it. And the way the Yes campaign presents the voice to Parliament is that it's simply a way for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, the the first peoples of Australia, the uh, people of Aboriginal heritage, to make representations to government, to make representations to Parliament about issues that concern them, about problems that they may that they may face that that other communities in Australia might not face. So they present it in this kind of quite bland, um, politically correct fashion. But as you say there, it has an inherently divisive quality, doesn't it? Because the whole basis of the idea of The Voice is that uh, there needs to be a special form of almost racial representation for a section of Australian society. And, th- and that's one of the things that worries campaigners like you, isn't it? That's exactly right. It is identity politics writ large. And uh, it's, it's not just the celebrity set. Uh, it, it's not just um, the, the elite Few, but it's the corporations, the big corporates that are backing the Yes campaign, mining giants, um, you know, pour, pouring millions of dollars. And, and these are these are people and individuals who are completely and utterly removed from the day-to-day lives of remote Indigenous Australians who live in communities that are out of sight, out of mind, whose first language uh, is often not English, uh, who have very little education, um, and this is, it's very paternalistic uh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, having a Wadbury mother, most of my Wadbury family are those marginalised individuals that live in remote communities. So I'm very aware of how they live their lives, the way that traditional Aboriginal culture plays a role sometimes detrimental uh, in their lives. And for many, many decades the Aboriginal industry has grown, this multi-million dollar industry has grown off the backs of the misery of these marginalised. And while the government, the Prime Minister suggests things have not been working to improve the lives of our most marginalised, well, I know exactly why, because they have been exploited for the purpose of building this uh, huge Aboriginal industry and they too are responsible for the lives of the marginalised but are seeking for to be constitutionally enshrined because their days are numbered. And it is separatism that has effectively maintained the marginalisation of our, of, of our you know, most marginalised Aboriginal people. Uh, but this is effectively separatism, asking for separatism within our founding document, within our constitution, uh, and it's something that I certainly cannot support. Yeah, you mentioned there that the Wapri people, um, where you, your mother comes from, that that Aboriginal community, and I know that they are based mainly in the Northern Territory, where you are now senator, and also in Alice Springs, where you were previously deputy mayor. 
And I did want to ask you about the different standing of Aboriginal communities or Aboriginal peoples in Australia, because it, the question I have in my mind, I've, I've visited Australia quite a few times. It does seem to me to, to be a vast distinction between remote communities, the kind of people you were talking about there, and Aboriginal movers and shakers in the cities, um, in Sydney and Melbourne, and the people who are uh, in some ways leading the Yes campaign for the Voice to Parliament. And there does seem to be a huge difference between those two different groups. The idea that they could all be put under the same umbrella of Aboriginal heritage people with similar concerns and interests seems to me to be rather dubious. So, So who would the Voice to Parliament really empower? If you had this a uh, constitutionally enshrined institution, and as you say, it, it's unclear exactly what form that institution would take. But if you were to have it, who, who would it benefit? It's unlikely, isn't it, that it would benefit quite poor remote communities in the Northern Territory. It seems to me more likely to be of benefit to those who are already um, making a living and building some moral authority through being Aboriginal campaigners in, in better off parts of Australia. Well, look, that's exactly right. And and you're right in that there are distinct differences between, um, you know, Aboriginal people living in those remote communities and urban people of Aboriginal descent. Uh, and in that, you know, those urban Indigenous Australians, sometimes uh, you can't differentiate from other urban uh, non-Indigenous Australians in our country, but our most marginalised um, still living closer to the traditional way of life uh, under cultural law. For example, my mother at the age of 13 had been promised in an arranged marriage, was supposed to become a second wife um, to her older sister's husband and chose to escape that way of life uh, for her. But there are still you know, customary law in terms of all premature death or illness is thought to have been caused through sorcery and therefore somebody has to be held responsible and violent payback as a form of justice must must be applied. And these are the sorts of so different from the lives of people in the cities, those of Aboriginal descent who don't have a connection to that traditional um, way of life anymore. They are the huge differences, but it is, it is those um, who have had access to education, who have access to uh, media, who have been, um, you know, activists for years, who are pushing for this voice proposal. I mean, one of the proponents of the voice, Noel Pearson, has been responsible for, you know, just over $550 million worth of government funding over the decades um, to fund many of the programs that he has initiated to improve the lives of people in remote communities. I mean, these people that are pushing for the voice, they've been around a long time. They've had a seat at the table. They've had the ear of many politicians. And I'd say that they're realising that now that we are overrepresented in our federal parliament, their days are numbered. And so this is about ultimately a transfer of power to, to that industry, to those individuals. So um, they will, you know, they will have power in perpetuity. And there's talk of treaties and reparations and compensation this is the talk of the activists. This isn't the talk of the, the the remote Indigenous Australian who is, you know, worried about how they're going to pay for the next drive into a major centre to do their shopping or how they're going to avoid the next violent payback within their community or how they're going to deal with their health problems. These are the day-to-day -day concerns 
of those remote Indigenous Australians and it's the activist class um, that are pushing to change our constitution. And that's evident now that the media are finding those um, Indigenous voices in communities to listen to. They're coming out and saying, well, we don't know anything about this proposal. We don't know why we should be supporting it. But it sure seems like it's another push from city folk, you know, who think they know better than we in, in these um, remote communities. Yeah, that, that's a really powerful point about about a transfer of power and this um institutionalization of influence for for the activist class as you call them um possibly because they're worried about the growing forms of representation that people of aboriginal descent have in in the federal parliament in the democratic institutions on that front i want to ask you about how this undermines australian democracy because it seems to me that regardless of what form the voice institutions might take and as you say, it's really problematic that that's going to be decided after the referendum, a kind of blank check for, for institution creation. Regardless of what form it takes, it, it, the whole idea of it seems to me to undercut democracy in Australia, because of course, everyone in Australia, regardless of their heritage, has the right to vote, to, to select who should represent their community and represent them. And this cuts against that grain, doesn't it? And it undermines a country that I think has good reason to be pretty proud of its democratic system. Absolutely. And Australians have, um, like much of the Western world, um, been come under attack from the ideological left to suggest that we're such a horrible, racist country. You know, we're one of the greatest multicultural nations in the world and we should be very proud of that. And as it stands, we have achieved equality in our country and this um, proposal um, would seek to create an imbalance in terms of uh, equality and, uh, you know, to suggest that, well, firstly, uh, on this premise that all Indigenous Australians are marginalised for no other reason um, but because of our racial heritage, I think is is racist, <laughs> really. And basically this is what they're seeking to change our constitution on that premise. Now, in terms of our um, democratic structure, basically this body will have the constitutional right to make representations uh, to the parliament, to the executive, uh, which means, you know, uh, prime minister and cabinet, the government departments and agencies. If I, for example, wanted to produce a private senator's bill to address the issue of alcohol in remote communities, to try to save the lives of uh, Indigenous Australians, they uh, could very well, if the voice was in existence, could very well uh, hold that process up and determine that what I, the, the, the changes that I want to make, the bill that I want to propose as an elected representative is something that they do not agree with, uh, effectively could challenge in the high court and hold the processes of government up. And, and not even us in opposition have, uh, have that much power uh, or scrutiny over Prime Minister and Cabinet and Cabinet Ministers. Uh, but this voice entity would have that constitutional right to do so. And our Prime Minister continues to disingenuously tell the Australian people that it is simply an advisory committee, but nowhere within the question to the Australian people or the proposed chapter does the word advice, advice uh, or advisory um, appear uh, and it is a body which is the same as the High Court is a body within the Constitution. The executive government is a uh, body within the Constitution. So it sits alongside those entities. And why should 
3% of the population have an opportunity as an extra say in terms of policy and legislation that affects all Australian people. That means three out of my four sons would get that opportunity to do so. My son, who is my stepson, who, who can't claim Indigenous heritage, doesn't get that opportunity. That is not equality. That's that's very well put. And I think that's why, that's one of the reasons, um, just one of the reasons, I think there are many reasons why this referendum is important, not just for Australia, but for, for the Western world, for the Anglosphere, because I think it does, if there were to be a voice style institution, it would represent the institutionalization of identity politics. And as you say, that chips away at the preferable ideals of equality, democracy, fairness. Uh, of course, Australia is well known for its idea of a fair go. You know, everyone should have a, a similar similar equality of opportunity. And this kind of undermines those ideals. I want to ask you about the the role that the politics of guilt plays in all of this, because one of the interesting interviews I saw with you, um, a journalist put it to you, I think it was a journalist from The Guardian Australia, put it to you that Aboriginal communities in Australia are still suffering the consequences of conquest and colonisation. So the idea that there's this kind of generational trauma that um, Aboriginal peoples are still feeling as if they still feel haunted by white fellas and um, repressed, even if it's only kind of emotionally and historically rather than in a real sense. And you pushed back quite powerfully against that idea and you suggested that it was a patronising idea. But to what extent do you think the voice comes from not only a patronising treatment of Aboriginal communities as permanent victims of history, but also from this kind of slightly off-putting sense of guilt that many white Australians seem to feel about their place in the world, about their country, this kind of sense of shame that they have. And they, they seem to think that the voice might help to alleviate some of that shame by institutionalising an Aboriginal voice. Yeah, look, absolutely. I have railed against guilt politics for years because uh, I resent when people, when white Australians tell me that, you know, they've done so much wrong to me and my people and they feel so guilty. And I sort of think, you, why would you say that? You've effectively told me I'm a victim and removed my agency and told me that I can't progress without, without what, empowerment from yourself as a, as a white Australian? What is it that you expect from this situation? And guilt is stifling. It, 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 it is helpful to nobody. And this voice concept is, has, is born out of guilt politics and grievance and that is no way to move forward and to resolve issues for anybody uh, in our country and I've just seen how you know in a nation such as Australia we've been a happy-go-lucky country we've always been able to express our opinions quite freely but now everybody is walking on eggshells and is afraid to speak and quite often I get people say to me well Jacinta you can say those things because you're Aboriginal but I can't. And I say, well, why can't you? And they say, because then I'll be called racist. And I say, well, are you? And they say, well, no. I said, well, there you go. What's what's wrong? <laughs> There's no problem if you're not actually a racist. You, you have to be concerned, I guess, if you are. But it, it's just been stifling for Australians. But this is what the Yes campaigners have been basically been relying on, guilt-ridden Australians uh, the goodwill of Australians who want to see improvements and playing on people's emotions to bring about a yes vote, which is 
the wrong way to um, support any proposal. You don't support it because you feel guilty. You support it if it's a good proposal where it demonstrates it can improve lives. That's what how you support something. But the, the, the guilt politics has been damaging and I'm finding that travelling around the country and, and speaking to audiences of, of, you know, thousands of people, I'm engaging with Australians who are just um, can feel like they can breathe because I'm offering them um, the facts to, to go out and actually have a conversation, have a respectful debate and use the facts and don't be brought down by name-calling uh, and mudslinging because that is no way to behave in a democratic country. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to come on to the to the name calling mudslinging aspect of some of some of the referendum because it seems to me that the more I follow the, I know this is probably because I'm uh, I'm in Britain, so I'm I'm a bit um, Anglo centric, I guess. But when I look at the voice referendum, it, it reminds me very often of the Brexit referendum of 2016. And by that, uh, I wrote a piece for the Australian a couple of weeks, making a couple of weeks ago, making this point that it seems to me that, yes, it's a referendum about a specific constitutional question. In our case, it was, should we stay in the European Union or leave it? In your case, it's, should you have this new voice to parliament or should you not? But it's also gone beyond that, just as the Brexit referendum went beyond the question of the EU and it became very much about, um, it became a generational clash and a class clash and we had the elites here kind of looking down their noses at leave voters and calling them stupid and racist and everything else. And it seems to me that a similar dynamic is is um, impacting on the voice referendum as well. So we had Marcia Langdon, who is a an Aboriginal activist, a, a distinguished professor, and she's a, a leader of the Yes campaign down there. And she recently said that the arguments of the of the no leaders were fueled by base racism and sheer stupidity. Now, you're one of the no leaders, and uh, I don't think anyone could call you either racist or stupid. But there is this mudslinging, as you say. How bad has that got? And, and what do you think that tells us about the Yes Lobby specifically, but also about the kind of elites that are behind the Yes Lobby? Yeah, look, I, I think it speaks volumes also about... Aboriginal politics in our country, which is another issue that I think as an Aboriginal person who's been involved in it all my life, can see the way in which, you know, people have been controlled in communities. Uh, Quite often it is uh, name-calling, you know, bullying behaviour, gaslighting that the aggressive become leaders in remote Indigenous communities and to a degree, that's what we're seeing on a, on a national scale now is that bullying Australians into voting or thinking or doing things in a particular way from the, from the grievance industry. And that's what everyday Australians are now being exposed to. The, the downside for the Yes campaign is that Australians don't respond to in a nice way to being called racist and being name-called and all of those things. It, I think it is what has effectively provided the, the latest polling that we've seen, a decline in the support for the Yes vote because they just can't help themselves 
when they can't argue a point effectively enough or demonstrate that this is going to um, improve anybody's life, then their frustrations get the better of them and they end up mudslinging. And, and I've, I've been a, a target of uh, Marcia Langdon's for quite some time and really, I mean, for me it's water off a duck's back, but I just, it's really unnecessary and, and I guess it's working in our favour in terms of um, getting more support for the no vote. But there was a time when I once stood beside Marcia to, to deliver a National Press Club address in 2016 to talk about the um, epidemic of family violence and sexual abuse of children in remote communities. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, we're now in a situation where there is so much division uh, and that level of mudslinging going on. Uh, but, you know, I grew up in a place like Alice Springs in the middle of Australia, life was tough. You had to be tough. <laughs> and um, I, I recognise that there are very vulnerable people out there that, that need their voices to be, to be amplified. And, and that's why I've just got to, I guess, continue on with this um, railing against this pro- proposition that will divide us as a nation. Uh, yeah, I think that, that point about um, Australians not taking kindly to being called racist is, is a very important one. And um, it's interesting that I, I think you, you throw a spanner in the works of a lot of people's minds, especially the kind of uh, leftish city uh, people, because you come from, you have Aboriginal heritage, as does uh, Warren Mundine, your fellow no campaigner. And uh, Johannes League did a brilliant cartoon in The Australian recently in which he showed campaigners like you, no campaigners like you knocking on someone's door, and then the, the white family the white upper middle class family inside the house were saying oh god here come the white supremacists so uh, i thought that captured brilliantly um the topsy-turvy nature of some of this identity politics where i guess someone like you is even looked upon by i don't know guardian reading correct thinking melbourne dwellers perhaps uh someone like you is is looked upon as i guess a turncoat or someone who is doing the bidding of the white man. Have you had that kind of abuse from people as well as you've been campaigning? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've had that kind of behaviour sort of <laughs> toward me. It's almost like uh, you see their heads explode when, when their ideas of what they think Aboriginal people, the noble savage who needs rescuing from the terrible colonists who's ruined our lives and now they need to repent. When you turn around and, and, and turn their thinking on its head, they don't know what quite to do with it when you suggest to them well actually I'm in fact a human being just like you I'm capable I can think for myself they don't know what to do with it Uh, and I think a lot of the media have also you know been delivering a narrative that victim narrative of Indigenous Australians and it has done it has done nobody any favours going forward but uh, you know, I hope to encourage other, I know there's plenty of people of Aboriginal descent and Aboriginal people who don't want to be seen as different, who don't want to be viewed as victims, who need rescuing. I think it's the most, it is absolutely one of the most paternalistic approaches to suggest that as an Aboriginal woman I have to think a particular way or do things in a particular way. And I, I've experienced that quite some time when I was um when I was, um, just before I became Deputy Mayor in Alice Springs and my second election onto Alice Springs Town Council as a councillor, the journalist asked me, she thought it was odd that I um, 
that I seemed to get on quite well with the old white men that sat on council with me and that I was a surprised conservative, as she put it. And I suggested, well, you know, I have a soft spot for old white men because my father is one and he's only ever loved me um, and brought me up to consider myself, a, a, you know, a citizen of the world where I, I belong anywhere, I can do anything and I'm capable. And, and that's the attitude, you know, that we have to start telling, um, you know, to get away from um, guilt politics, to get away from identity politics uh, and and for Aboriginal people to understand they're capable human beings uh, and that our wonderful country provides the opportunities for them to excel. It's the reason why my mother, although came, coming from a traditional background, was elected to the Northern Territory government and became a cabinet minister in the Northern Territory government. And during her time, I was sworn in by her when she was the Minister for Local Government when I was first elected to council and that I can become a senator um, in federal parliament and shadow minister for Indigenous Australians. I, we didn't need a, a constitutionally enshrined voice to do that because our nation provided the opportunities for that. Uh, and we didn't get there because we were Aboriginal women. <laughs> we got there because we're capable human beings. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book. And I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Um, okay, Jacinta, just a couple more quick questions before I let you get back to your campaigning. I think another great thing about this referendum process um, from my outsider perspective, is that it has called into question the new fact-checking regimes that we all live under, uh, particularly on social media and on the internet more broadly, because there has been a, a, a big controversy in Australia which made waves around the world too uh, in relation to one of the fact-checkers on Facebook and who they were really fact-checking. So this was uh, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, which was uh, an accredited Facebook fact-checker, Turns out it's a pretty partisan institution. Um, so, for example, between the 3rd of May and the 23rd of June this year, it did 17 checks on uh, information relating to The Voice, and all of those 17 checks were targeting anti-voice opinions. So people who were on Facebook promoting no, saying let's say no to The Voice. And it, it, it caused a big storm that this was essentially political censorship and eventually... Uh, the Royal Melbourne uh, Institute of Technology was temporarily suspended from doing fact checks on Facebook. So that's pretty sinister, isn't it? And it, if that had happened to the other side, if that were happening to yes, I'm sure there would have been a, a, an enormous storm. So you've had to face not only, as you say, the fact that yes is backed by the huge corporations, celebrity influencers and so on, but also an attempt to twist the discussion to make it harder for the no voice to get out there? Oh, absolutely. They've been insidious in the way that they've tried to discredit 
you know, those arguing the no case, they've certainly come after me. They continue to come after me. Nothing that they've had been able to do so far has, um, you know, <laughs> has managed to um, deter me. But and, and and you're right, it's probably actually the Yes campaign that required more fact-checking than our side, especially with regard to, you know, Peter Credlin, who is an incredible uh, journalist and presenter on Sky News. Uh, she's a formidable woman who used to work for our former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. But she had, you know, we, we were highlighting the fact that the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, which is the statement that was brought about by um, those pushing the voice uh, and, you know, the, the whole Uluru, which is uh, our iconic land site in the middle of Australia, cultural significance to the Arunungal people and to those of us who are connected to them, but nobody else really, uh, that behind that statement there was the one-page statement, which was which I don't agree with, by the way, but painting Aboriginal people as victimised and, um, you know, a whole raft of things. We won't go too much into that. But that there were 25 other pages behind that document basically outlining the plans that the proponents of The Voice had for The Voice, the detail that the Prime Minister failed to provide. And then there was a whole argument um, about whether it was one page or 25 pages and RMIT fact-checked. Well, they didn't really fact-check. They just went along with the Prime Minister's claim that it was just one page. And then uh, Peter Credlin's story online was censored as a result of that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's been various other ways that they've tried to undermine those of us on the no side. And it is concerning because the government has before on the floor of um, the, the lower house a, a bill for misinformation and disinformation that would seek to create censorship and also make it illegal to spread what they deem as misinformation and disinformation, but not if they themselves as the government is spreading that, but others who highlight something of theirs that it would be deemed to be misinformation uh, would then, that would be uh, against the law to do that. So, you know, they're beginning to really encroach on our freedoms, freedom of speech, um, freedom of being able to debate issues relevant to all Australians and they're, they're, they're doing it in various different ways. And so it was only right that um, the R RMIT Fact Lab have now been disassociated, well, that Facebook have disassociated themselves from them because of this censorship and insidious undermining of democracy. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, okay, Jacinta, my final question for you is the 14th of October, which is uh, referendum day, is, is fast approaching. As you mentioned earlier, the polls do suggest that yes is suffering a lot and that um, people are, are leaning towards voting no, leaning towards um, agreeing with you that this would be a divisive, problematic institution and Australia should reject it. So I want to just finish by asking you if you feel optimistic and what you think the impact on Australia will be if the S campaign is given a bloody nose and, and, and that kind of common sense that you're campaigning for uh, wins the day on the 14th of October? 
Yeah, look, no matter what the outcome is, we are a nation divided at the minute. And and I have repeatedly said that this is the most divisive referendum we've ever experienced as a country. And the Prime Minister has to take responsibility for this level of division that has occurred. I am quietly confident that, you know, we can get the no vote over the line, but I'm certainly not complacent. Between now and the 14th, I will be working hard to continue campaigning around the country because I think that the number one thing that drives people to a no vote is the fact that when they do seek information on this proposal, they're not getting anything. They're getting they're getting the vibe. They're getting a nice concept, but absolutely no detail and no demonstration of how it's going to improve anyone's life. And that's what's pushing people, I believe, toward no vote. And when Australians vote no, they are voting to maintain equality in our country. They are voting no to the continued aggressiveness of leftist ideology that has slowly eroded our wonderful shared Australian values and culture. And I I am privileged to be in a position where I hope to be able to rebuild our nation, to feel proud of who we are as Australians again, so that our children can stand proud to call themselves Australian and that they're not forced to do stupid things like uh, not long ago there was, a you know, preschool-aged children who were forced to write sorry letters to Indigenous Australians for what happened in our country's history. Uh, we need to stop politicising our children and let kids be kids and, and these the issues that extend from that are issues that I will certainly be fighting for within the Australian Parliament after October 14 and to find real, meaningful ways to improve the lives of our marginalised. Jacinta, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you for listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design, the kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.